Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM or WPLN.org. We are journeying into the identity of our city and region, and we're bringing you along with us. Today's show is all about the arts, the visual arts, that is. The art scene has been growing all over the city, especially in places like Wedgwood, Houston and Buchanan. Meanwhile, spaces like the Van Vechten Gallery at Fisk continue to show the world these world-class exhibits. Today, we're talking with artists and gallery owners to get a clearer picture of the arts in Nashville. But first, on Friday, former Vanderbilt nurse Redonda Vaught was found guilty of criminally negligent homicide and the abuse of an impaired adult. In 2017, Vault administered the wrong medication to a patient who subsequently died. The verdict has sent shockwaves across the nursing profession. Here to help us make sense of the verdict is Brett Kelman, reporter for Kaiser Health News. Brett, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Fan of the show. Honored to be here. Really, really appreciate that. So before we get to the impact of the verdict, let's just talk a minute about what Redonda Vaught actually did. Can you explain the medical error that Vaught made in 2017? Sure, I can explain most of it. But as I do this, there are elements that even now I think you question how they actually happened. Hmm. It is a cliche in journalism to refer to something as a perfect storm. But so many elements here had to align for this to go as bad as it did that it seems almost unrealistic. Um, Basically, we had a patient who was at Vanderbilt, Charlene Murphy, uh, for a brain injury. And she was getting better. She was on pathway to being released from the hospital. She went to have a scan to see if there was any issues left with her brain. And she was claustrophobic. She was going to go into one of a large MRI-like machine. So Mm -hmm. she was prescribed a sedative just to calm her down. Um, Redonda Vaughn was tasked with getting that sedative from a medication cabinet. She went to that cabinet and through a series of errors withdrew a different medication with the wrong sounding name didn't notice that she had the wrong medication despite a lot of warnings that she did, didn't notice that the medication was a powder when it was supposed to be a liquid, gave it to the patient, and then did not monitor that patient and left her. Simultaneously, that patient then went into the scanning machine where people were not as able to keep as close an eye as her as they normally would, and it turned out that the medication she was given Uh, paralyzed her body so much that Mm. oxygen could not reach her brain, and it left her with severe brain damage, basically to the extent of being brain dead. Um, There's also other elements. There was no scanner that gave the nurse the opportunity to double-check the medication at the last instant, although she could have done it manually. So many things had to align for this to happen the way it did, but it did. And Mm. the end result is that a patient is dead, and Redonda Vaughn is looking at time in prison. So this wasn't made public at the time, right? How'd you come to find this story? So from my perspective, at the time I was a healthcare reporter at the Tennessean, and what initially come, had come out is that the Centers for Medicaid and Medicaid Service, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service, a big federal agency that holds an incre- responsibility for an incredible amount of federal money, uh, was threatening to cut off Medicare reimbursement to Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Um, that is effectively a death sentence for a hospital. That takes away so much funding that no hospital could survive without it. 
And we're talking about one of the largest and most prestigious hospitals in the country. Mm -hmm. um, there was a federal investigation report that, without saying any names, identified this horrific drug of, uh, error that had killed a patient. And what the federal government was effectively saying is if you don't take steps to correct this, we will pull your federal reimbursement. Vanderbilt jumped, made some corrections, and reassured the CMS enough that they cut off the threat to end reimbursement. Um, at the time, it kind of felt like the story was over. And then a certain time later, criminal charges were filed against this nurse, and all these other details became public that weren't initially. Okay, so walk me through that timeline right there, because it wasn't necessarily the criminal charges didn't pop up. Like, as you just referred to, they came up a little bit later. Walk walk us through the timeline as, as best as you can. Okay. Well, remember, you asked for this. Okay. Um, okay. So the incident happens in December of 2017. Uh, right after that, Vanderbilt takes some actions that result in the incident not being known to the government and the public. Um, it fired Redon Devant. It negotiated a settlement with the family that includes a non-disclosure agreement so they wouldn't talk about the death or the drug error. It did not report the error to state government or federal regulators as it's required by law. The hospitals admitted this. They say they didn't know they were supposed to. Um, it reported the death to the medical examiner as a natural causes as mm. with no mention of a drug error. It did not report the error to the Joint Commission, which is an accrediting body responsible for hospitals. That's optional, but many hospitals would have done it. And as a result, nobody knew what had happened to Charlene Murphy for approximately 10 months until an anonymous tipster, I have no idea who, uh, told the state government and the federal government, which triggered an investigation, which led to the threat to cut off Medicare that I described earlier. Okay. Um, then the Tennessee Department of Health decided not to discipline Vanderbilt. They decided not to investigate or discipline Redon Devant. A few months went by, criminal charges surfaced, and me and everybody else in Nashville heard her name for the first time. And then this case became a national story because circumstances of nurses being criminally prosecuted for medical errors are exceptionally rare. Okay. Now, the jury decided on a lesser charge. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so Redon Devant was initially charged with reckless homicide, and she was convicted of a lesser charge of criminally negligent homicide. And this ultimately breaks down to kind of some legalese over how specifically irresponsible her actions were. Um, I think to meet the burden of reckless homicide, prosecution would have had to have proven that she was knowingly, she consciously disregarded safety protocols. And the defense's argument was, if she thought she had the right drug, how could she have consciously disregarded those protocols they went back and forth with this for hours. Uh, eventually, it's clear the jury decided to hold her responsible for the death in some ways, but didn't feel that she was as reckless as prosecutors initially argued. Now, nurses around the country have been following this case very closely. What has their response been to the verdict? Um, fear. Mm. So 
in hospitals, there are errors every day. Most of those errors don't harm anyone. They are caught by a redundant level of systems, both computerized and through and, and personnel, and stopped before they do any harm. Sometimes they do reach patients, and they still don't do major harm. Circumstances where people die are less common, but they do happen. Circumstances where people die and then a medical professional is criminally charged, very rare. And they loom very large in the collective memory of this profession. Um, you know, imagine doing a radio report yeah. so bad that you get criminally indicted for it. It's not a thing that happens. But if it did, it would certainly scare you, mm -hmm. as would it scare me. Mm -hmm. um, so every nurse around the country who looks at this case worries, one, that they could make an honest, an honest error and then get charged the same. There is also a response that if medical professionals are worried they're going to get criminally charged, they're going to be far less willing to disclose mistakes or near mistakes because they'll feel like they're coughing up evidence against them. And if nurses and doctors are less willing to admit mistakes, mistakes don't get fixed and healthcare is less safe for everyone. You know, it's been well documented that nurses have been under increased pressure since the pandemic really hit us. Does this verdict add even more pressure? Uh, there are many who would argue it could. So it is important to remember that everything that happened with Redondavant happened in 2017, which feels like it might as well be 1917 at this point. Mm -hmm. um, the prosecutor described it as tri trial as a gentler era, which feels right. Um, but since then... We've had this pandemic. Nurses have had probably the worst two years of most of their career. They're working longer hours. They have more patients. They're more stressed. And there is good research that shows all of those variables make them more accident prone. So not only might they be worried about the precedent set that they could be criminally prosecuted, but it could come at the same time when through just sheer humanity, they are more prone to make errors like this one. Would that potentially, could that potentially lead, in your opinion, could that lead to, you know, a decrease in people attempting to be even become nurses or medical professionals? There are definitely people who are concerned about that. I have seen a large number of responses to this coverage that says people would be less willing to become nurses or if I was not already nursed, this wouldn't make me want to be one. Mm -hmm. um, it... It definitely could discourage some. You know, the district attorney's office released a statement over the weekend stating that the jury's conviction of Vaught was not an indictment on the nursing profession or medical field, but of her neglect in her nursing duties. How do you respond to that? I think the DA's office had a difficult task here. Um, it is routinely found that nurses are one of the most trusted and beloved professions in the United States. And they opened this trial by arguing that this case is not an indictment of all nurses. It was specifically uh, about Redonda Vaughn. But I would question if that is entirely their decision to make. The DA's office can say that this is not an attack or an indictment of the entire profession. But I'm not sure that they would know. We will see what this case and any precedent it might set comes to be. And intent 
in reality, much like in the Redon Devant case, are rarely are, are are not are rarely perfectly aligned. What's next for Redon Devant? So she will be sentenced um, in mid-May. She's been convicted of two felonies that carry sentencing ranges of three to six years and one to two years. Those could potentially stack on top of each other, but more likely will probably overlap. So she's looking at three to six years in prison. Brett Kelman of Kaiser Health News, thank you for joining us and thank you for breaking this down. Really appreciate having you here. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we dig into the art scene here in Nashville. The visual arts are exploding. We talk with some of the folks who are making it happen. We'd also love to hear your comments, so tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. Today's show is all about the visual arts. Tucked away in a Madison strip mall, Art House Coffee is a new coffee shop and gallery slated to open sometime this summer. Over the weekend, owner SQ gave us a tour. <laughs> As we step in, we can smell the antiseptic and hairspray. This spot used to be a salon. For now, that still lingers. But as SQ explains, it will soon be a very different kind of space. You'll see a large coffee bar, you know, in the back wall here, and uh, you'll feel invited and sort of enamored enough to, you know, want to grab your cup of coffee, but also stick around and just kind of walk the room and get to know the people around you, get to know the art on the walls and why uh, we are here, which is for that purpose, to share um, with the community, the amazing local artists that are here in Nashville. SQ came to Nashville several years ago with dreams of being a full-time musician. But after the pandemic hit and music gigs started to dry up, he found solace in visual art. And so began the Art House Coffee Dream. As I got more uh, entrenched in the uh, local arts scene in Nashville, I realized that there's a need for more um, black, brown, LGBTQ-owned and run galleries, and there's a need for a safe space for that community. There just aren't enough spaces, um, especially for the marginalized communities. I mean, there are some really great galleries out there right now. A lot of them are kind of the old guard. A lot of them are um, people who have been here for a long time doing a great thing, but I think there's, there's so much room for growth that, you know, we need some more energy put back into the arts community and more life brought to it so that, you know, there are more safe spaces where, where artists that are might not have a voice yet, you know, not, might not have a stage yet can go, hey, I think I can show here, you know, feel comfortable about being in a space and growing from there. That's part of the inspiration for sure. But SQ says he's also inspired by the art scene in Nashville and how unique it is. Nashville has so much more under the surface, you know, that that is so unexpected to me. And I I actually come from uh, St. Pete, Florida, where there is a very healthy 
um, art scene down there, but it's all very similar styles, very similar people, and they're all very fantastic. But here, you know, you can meet one artist that does one thing, and then another one in the same caliber, same talent, but does so, something totally different. So it's like, you know, you can, you can see an array of different things throughout the city uh, with what we have now, and I think that's just so cool. My next guests are two artists who are intimately familiar with the growth of the arts in Nashville. Greg Pond is a professor at the University of the South and co-founder of the Fugitive Arts Center. Marlos Evan is a visual and performance artist, filmmaker, and co-founder of the Magruder Artist Residency Program in North Nashville. Welcome, Greg and Marlos. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, yeah, thank you for, for having, having us. Pleasure. It's absolutely our pleasure. So... We just heard SQ talk about how the Nashville art scene has room to grow, and you both have seen it grown a lot. You've seen it grow a lot. So, Greg, let me start with you. Take us back to 1998. What was the art scene like okay, here so, in Nashville? Yeah, so I landed here in 1998 thinking I'd be here for six months and then on my way out. And it was um, what, what was really special about it and why I've been here now for 20-some years um, is that there were um, a bunch of artists who were working very hard to create these kind of um, <clears throat> warehouse space sort of shows and do some very interesting things. Um, and, and that collaboration that we started to have became very important. So then I started inviting folks studying from out of town to come move here. And, um, and we, we got the Fugitive wrong, right? Um, it was a, kind of an underground space. It was a space that was really meant because some a number of us were showing in commercial galleries, but um, we also wanted a space that was independent mm -hmm. um, and could also house artists and provide them a, a, a place to work. And so that's kind of where the fugitive came about. And that was kind of the, the ethos, I guess, of the, the entire space. Um, it's interesting to see the evolution of that. And I think I'm really interested to hear what Marlos has to say about his work because you go from Fugitive to Fort Houston to um, to this social practice place. It's Magruder, is that right? Yeah, that's right, Magruder Center. Yeah, yes. And, you know, and seeing the evolution and thinking not just about content and the way we work within the system of art, you know, uh, of arts as they were, as I knew them as I was coming up into the broader practice and into social practice, right? And, and, and that's really about impact on community. Um, and I think that's a much more generous um, way of thinking about what we do as artists. So Gre thank you. Greg, what was the vibe at The Fugitive like back in the day? Oh, it was punky, you know, I mean, we all came up in the, like the warehouse shows of like the eighties and nineties, you know, I mean, I'm an old man. So, um, and so, um, and so it was, um, it was rough and tumble <laughs> for sure. Um, there were lots of, of folks who really were just eager to try to build this. And when I came out of school, I knew that I needed an artist community, right. To continue to stay, sustain my practice. And so I sought one out. And so I found a, a handful of really wonderful artists in town um, who wanted to do the same thing. And we just happened to get a, 
oh, it was 14,000 square feet for, you know, um, I mean, kind of amazing. You can't find that in, in Nashville. I'm, and I'm also interested to hear from Marlis, like, how do you find it as, as, as establishing art spaces now in town, <laughs> right? And what it takes for, for artists to kind of move things forward. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it was a different landscape then. Um, well, so well, anyway, I'm sorry. No, no, it's perfect. Marlos, you know, Greg just told us about what having an art space was like 24 years ago in the late 90s. As the co-founder of the Magruder Artist Residency Program, do you see any similarities to what you've been experiencing in establishing your space? Oh, I definitely do. I definitely do. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons how me and Courtney Adair Johnson ended up at Magruder. It was a thought that, well, we know artists need spaces, but those spaces aren't readily available. And if they are available, they're pretty expensive when you have to pay rent to where you live too. So we did, like Greg just uh, stated, we kind of, we seeked out what we needed and what we needed was space. We found a place where we can form a partnership that not only allows us to align with the community, but keep our professional practices growing. And therefore in turn, starting an artist residency, we help other artists practice grow and kind of like do our part to address that, that need, which is space for artists to work. You just talk, talked about aligning with the community. Why is that important to you? That's a good question. I, I feel like it's important for me because sometimes when you think of artists, you think of somebody that's tucked away in some room making art and they only show themselves or show the work when it's time to do a show or do a, a lecture. And with my work, uh, personally, a lot of my work is informed by real stories and I get a lot of stories from the community. So sometimes when I'm at Magruder, I'm working the front desk, helping out where they need help and actually having conversations with people within the community and that allows me to stay in touch with the community because I feel like my work is for us all and I'm not trying to make a division in that and, and, and just pop up and say oh here's my work it's about this it's about that it's about the people but I'm never involved with the people that just doesn't make sense to me so I'd rather stay connected. Magruder is not a typical space right like tell me more about it. <laughs> right. So Magruder Center is a family resource center. This is where you come if you need uh, rental assistance, uh, utility bill assistance, get hooked up on food stamps. We also have job training programs here. We got a sewing academy here. A and that's just that's perfect because it is multimedia in, in its own right. And now we have an art space here. So I feel like we're doing something that, that hasn't been done a lot not saying that it's not being done in other places, but for us, I feel like it's a blessing to be able to, to, to bring that energy here and, and be supported by the people here and the community around us. That's truly unique and fantastic. You know, something that I find interesting is the pattern of gentrification and how it emerges often in artist districts. I'd like to hear from both of you on this. Like, is gentrification a foregone conclusion when artists start moving into an area? Greg, what are your thoughts? 
that has been something that's been on my mind for for a couple of decades hmm. in moving into that space where it was you know i moved into a trailer in the alley next to it and lived in a very you know again i was just trying to create find a space for myself right that was independent and i cut a little bit itinerant and and encourage other artists to make right um and the evolution of that neighborhood um <clears throat> i do you know think about in terms of what what it's meant right um i think we as artists and i think this is where most like excels is that we were thinking about trying to create this sort of art scene that we that we really wanted to have here um and again that that in that idea of impact and community engagement and social practice right is incredibly important to start to think about especially as this city has changed so much i came up in portland oregon um, spent a lot of time in Austin, Texas, and watched these cities evolve, right, very rapidly, and Nashville's now doing that, um, and what it means to the communities that, that exist here is extremely important, and what it means for everyone, right, and not just for the artists, not just for the people, you know, I could go on and on, but you know what I mean, so. I hear you. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the visual art scene and how it's making a name for itself here in Music City. Marlos, I'd like to get your reaction to what Greg said and what we were talking about earlier, like gentrification coming into areas and communities through the through artists. Yeah, y'all got some really good questions today. but um, Thanks. We work hard. I feel like, yeah. Oh, I see. I love it. Uh, I feel like artists, we don't come into these situations looking to gentrify. Like, we're not natural gentrifiers. But I feel like artists should also watch out in those situations where they live for people that kind of use us to gentrify. Hmm. Um, where cer certain socioeconomic groups feel more comfy moving in because we come and beautify an area. Um so I, I just want to say, like, artists just have to be aware that we can be used sometimes to make a place look more upscale. Uh, in my practice, in, in our practice here at Magruder, and a lot of artists I know, we, we choose to uplift the community and not take away from it. And, and a lot of times I notice artists themselves are being pushed out from these areas. Like in North Nashville, there's plenty of artists I know who moved out of the area because they couldn't afford rent anymore. Hmm. And some of those artists have done things to beautify the uh, the the community or the area, and didn't know what was up along the road waiting for them. You're priced out. Next thing you know, when you look up. Mm -hmm. Greg, based on your experience, do you think there's anything artists can do to help change this pattern of gentrification? Yes, I do. Um, I think that, um, you know, again, we had a certain agenda, which is about kind of getting outside, setting something up that was not outside of the like regular commercial gallery system, right? Um, and providing opportunities for artists. Um, 
now we see models like with Marlos is through it and also like like Bryce McLeod too, you know, the way Pie Town was actually named, if you look into that history, that's pretty amazing. And I think this, um, and it's, it, Bryce says, if you make art with, with someone for an hour, it's like you've known them for years. And I think that's a really, really important thing. I think that generosity and that, um, and again, we're thinking not just about content in terms of the art, but impact on the community, right? Mm -hmm. in, which, in which we exist. And um, that, I will just say, to be honest, that wasn't really on our radar when we, when I came out of grad school. It's not the way we were thinking, and it's so much more about our social dialogue now that I think it's really important. And I'm really glad to see um, this, these sort of projects like Marlon's doing it as in in Nashville. It's important to preserve the cultural. Arts are important, right? They change, they impact the way we see the world, right? And um, and to be able to extend that, right, um, into the sort of the, the realm of social, social practice is is really great. So, yeah. Anyway, I'll stop there. But. Mar Marlos, I understand your artists have to give back as a part of their residency. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so what we ask incoming artists in the residency to do, which is uh, named Magruder Social Practice Artist Residency, MSPAR for short, we offer space, and what we ask for the artists to give back is their time with the community through either studio visits, art exhibitions in the space, or in the community, and lectures, and reactivation so those are the things that we ask in turn we're not necessarily well we aren't asking for money we're just asking for you to do something along the lines of those things to offer your valuable time rather than money i understand that now yes greg has some old school experience with the scene in the city marlos do you have any questions you'd like to ask him yeah what greg what do you how do you feel about the art scene where it is now? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it's it's evolving. It, it ebbs and flows here, I think. Um, mm -hmm. That, you know, before I got here, there was a very vibrant art scene that was kind of run by other people. And you can talk to Lane York and, and lots of other people about that. Um, there are some really brilliant articles written by a man named David Max, who was our best art critic um, in the early 2000s. Um, one in number um, 62, um, as you know, number magazine, um, on the death of galleries. And then he wrote an article about fugitive um, on why places like ours were important to cities like Nashville. Um, and ironically, that was the one that got us shut down by the fire marshal. But um, but I still appreciate that. I, I appreciate wow. the article more than the entire enterprise, right? Um, and so um, we again, we were kind of an underground space, of course. But um, uh, but David contributed a tremendous amount 
to um, write about the arts in Nashville. Um, and he's got a um, website called, or a blog called Perambulating per per the Bounds. Um, but I think he was doing more than just providing reviews of artist shows. He was writing about the entire um, kind of creative landscape um, of the city. And that was the most important thing to me. So, um, so I've seen the evolution and it's, it's um, and I'm really glad to see what you're doing. I'll just say that. I'm really oh, wow. glad Thank that you. both of you have taken time to both be on the show. I hope that you two keep conversations going and really appreciate you being with us. Thanks to artists Marlos Evan and Greg Pond for joining us. Really appreciate it, you two. Thank you. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we're joined by people who run art galleries and learn more about the vital role they play in our city. And we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil e. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We are exploring the visual art scene in Nashville and talking with some people who are setting the trend for this growing community. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Jamal Sheets is the director and curator of Fisk Galleries at Fisk University. Jamal, welcome to This is Nashville. Hill, thank you. It's such a pleasure to, to be here. Really a pleasure to have you with us. So if you would, give us a brief history of the Fisk Galleries. What can I expect to see there? Ooh, brief is something that's hard to do. <laughs> uh, but the first thing I, I will say is that I am a child of a fugitive. Uh, as a student, I would, uh, as a student at Fisk, uh, Alicia Henry or Professor Henry would take us to see the fugitive exhibitions. And so I want to thank Craig for, for the work that that, 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 that that group had done, as well as thank Marlos for his commitment and all the work that he's doing in our communities, in our community. Um, but to, just to give a snapshot about Fisk, uh, Fisk is, is, a, is a small historically black college university um, that the arts are part of the cultural and intellectual fabric of the institution. And so literally since our founding, we've been collecting and we have over 4,500 objects. Um, the other thing is that though we had been collecting since the 1870s, we didn't have our first permanent art gallery until 1949, and that was after the receipt of the Alfred Stieglitz collection. Hmm. And so with that, you know, there's a, a huge storied history about Aaron Douglas, who had come to Fisk in 1930 to paint the murals in Cravath Hall. He would be considered the visual voice of, of the Harlem Renaissance to, um, to, and he would come and found the art department in 1944. Uh, and I, he would found the art department in 1944 and would, and would be the chairman until 1967. And that's when David Driscoll took off. And he came to Fisk and really amplified and really caused our collections, but even the department to really expand and grow. And today we, we have Alicia Henry, who's at the helm of the art department, and I'm in the gallery. So that kind of, I guess that gives you kind of a historical snapshot of the gallery. Mm -hmm. Now, earlier in the show, we had two artists, Marlos Evan and Greg Pond, talk a little bit about exclusivity in the art world. 
How do spaces yeah. like Fisk Galleries all serve the community at large? Mm. Well, one, we feel as if we are a resource, you know, that, that, that the galleries themselves hold this kind of accumulation of knowledge and, and information. Uh, but we have to activate it. And so the vehicles that we use to activate it, our first front lines are our faculty and students. And so we have a gallery ambassador program and they help us, you know, provide tours. And, uh, you know, right now we're installing a new exhibition. They help us with everything that we do in the gallery. But the most important part is us being engaged in the community. And so we're constantly, we've, it, and it ebbs and flows. Um, we're con we've been constantly up until COVID actually in the community. And we would have programs through partnerships that would range from zero to 12 months, like big babies in the gallery. Those are for mothers or caretakers and grandparents to bring infants zero to 12, zero to 18 months uh, to come to the gallery. And we would have a ball with, with some of our ambassadors who are Jubilee singers would, would kind of choreograph the, the tour and sing songs like E-I-E-I-O or Oh Madonna Had a Farm. But then we have programs that we partnered with Vanderbilt for a number of years for the life, the OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute. And so that was geared toward seniors. And then we would do another program, which is like for 10 to 12 year olds, Lego builds uh, in conjunction with, the, with one of our exhibitions. And so we try to engage the community in a lot of different ways. The other thing that we do is that we have offer a number of training programs. Uh, we have a Fisk Museum Leadership Initiative. And so that includes uh, the Fisk Museum Leadership Program. Uh, also includes the, we have a two-year fellowship with LACMA. And then we just completed uh, the Bank of America Conservation Intensive, where we had our students working with alongside a conservator to conserve objects from our collection. Members of the community were welcome to come in and, and, and check it out. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna. We're talking this hour about the expanding visual arts scene here in Nashville. I'd like to bring in my next guest, Ashley Leyendecker. She is the director of Red Hour Galleries. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being with us. So tell me about Red Hour. How did it get started? Red Arrow is celebrating its eight-year anniversary uh, here in Nashville. It started in Joshua Tree, California, um, and then when the owner, Katie Shaw, moved to Nashville, she uh, opened up a space in Riverside Village that um, got closed down, and now we're over here in East Nashville. That's our home for the past four years, um, and we love it. I've been with Red Arrow for four years, started as an intern, and made my way up to director. It's a female-run and operated gallery, mm -hmm. and we focus in um, um, inclusion and as well as showing art that we believe is pushing the contemporary art world forward and not backwards and uh, art and having shows that are having conversations with broader um, contemporary art scenes, not only in the South or not only in Nashville. The pandemic changed things for us all. I think it's fair to say, how did it affect Red Arrow? Like how were you all able to sustain through all the uncertainty of the times? Oh, man, yeah, it was it was really scary at first because who's going to buy art um, when, you know, you have to worry about if you have a job or not. Um, but everyone kind of took a little bit of a break. I stepped back from the gallery for a month um, just to try to see if 
uh, what we should do next. And then we decided that this is the time to show work and this is the time to curate important shows. It kind of changed everything for the gallery. It made us like so many people during the pandemic shift our focus and really make sure and made us realize what we wanted to do. And so we came back bigger and better than ever and uh, started developing a collector base that wanted to support us through this transition and support our artists. And our artists were in the studios. Um, that's all they wanted to do during that time is disappear in the studios. They started making um, even more amazing work than they were before. And uh, since, since 2020, uh, the gallery has had its best years yet um, financially and with the artist relationships that we're building and for our artists as well. Who are the collectors that are moving the market here in Nashville? Where are they from? Well, um, you know, I, I would love to say that I have a lot of uh, Nashville collectors. There are a few, um, but a few big collectors live outside of Nashville, um, which is a problem that we need to address as a city. Um, but uh, I have a lot of collectors in uh, California and Canada, New York, um, Chicago, uh, London, um, places like that that have established um, kind of centers around collecting and why it's important. Um, but I would love to start um, building that awareness of for wealth in the South and why it's important to collect and for um, people to support the arts and advocate for the arts here in uh, Nashville and the South. How can Nashville residents and businesses really support the visual arts scene here? Well, it's, it's kind of simple and it's kind of layman's terms, but um, buy artwork. Um, if hmm. you have financial means to buy artwork, um, you have no idea how far buying one painting runs. Um, it, it helps support the gallery that um, you buy from. And um, even more importantly, it um, means the world to the artists. Um, you know, my favorite part of the job is to let my artists know when something sells and seeing their reaction because it might be the difference from them being able to pay rent this month or be able to quit a part-time job and just solely work in the studio. Um, it it uh, Collecting art, um, funnels way deeper than just having something on your wall. And uh, it's it's a great pleasure for me to be able to do that for my artists and uh, see, see how that um, can affect their practice moving forward. I have just about a minute left, but I'd love to get quick answers from both of you. When you think about the future of the visual art scene here in Nashville, what gets you excited? Jamal. I'm going to say the people. I mean, I'm just excited about I mean, I, 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 we only have one minute. So I'm gonna say the community and the people. There's so many young, talented artists that are making such incredible work right now. Um, and so I'm just excited, you know, and I have a firm belief that the arts inform us of, of, of who we've been, who we're becoming and who we aspire to be. And so I feel with the work that these artists are making uh, that our future is bright in Nashville. Ashley, 30 seconds. I agree with Jamal completely. Yeah, the people and uh, people coming out and supporting. Um, I've, I've seen it happen uh, more in the past two years than I have been, you know, for the four years that I've been here. So I'm really just excited to see what the future is because I think it's bright and uh, I'm looking forward to being a part of it. That was Ashley Leyendecker. She was joined by Jamal Sheets. Thank you both for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we bring you a Citizen Nashville exclusive, a primer on how you can vote in the upcoming local elections. It's important. You don't want to miss it. 
This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive tr- producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to everybody who contributed to the show. The conversation does not end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out a quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.